Exodus chapter 1. Sunday nights through the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation and finishing the book of Genesis, we now move into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a continuation of uh, the account in the book of Genesis. It continues the uh, following the history of the Jews and in following the history of the Jews, it is uh, as a result telling us uh, about the history of God's provision for a Savior for the world because He promised that He would bring a Savior into the world uh, through them. There's a time gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus of about 250 to 300 years. You remember when God spoke in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham, He spoke to Abraham and promised him the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, but he told them that it is a part of their journey to possessing that land that they would spend 400 years in a foreign land, uh, uh, a uh, 400 years of, of bondage and, and hardship in that land. And uh, when Jacob came uh, into Egypt, as uh, Joseph invited him to come in, uh, he brought the children of Israel into Egypt at that time. And uh, uh, so before the death of Joseph, in the time that Jacob came into the land, 71 years of that 400 years. Moses is going to be 80 years old. He's not born yet in Exodus, but he's going to be 80 years old when he leads the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt. So, got about 150 years there. God said, you're going to be in there 400 years. They were in there for those two blocks of time. And uh, so you subtract that from the 400 and you get 250, 300, more or less uh, in, in all of, uh, of that. The book is entitled Exodus, which means a going out because it's a record of God's delivering the children of Israel out of the bondage and the hardship of uh, Egypt. And, uh, and the theme of the book is redemption. Uh, and it's a record of God's redeeming the children of Israel out of that bondage and hardship of, of uh, Egypt. And all of it, of course, a picture of the greater redemption, the greater deliverance, the greater salvation that Jesus provides of taking us not out from under uh, a physical uh, Pharaoh, out of a physical Egypt, but Jesus come into the world to bring us out of the Egypt of this world, the Egypt of, of sin and the bondage of sin, and out from under the dominion of a even harsher taskmaster than uh, Pharaoh, and that is the devil uh, himself. The author of the book, as with the book of Genesis, is Moses. You know, you can read literally hundreds of pages of people debating about who wrote the book of Exodus and all of these things. And, you know, um, sometimes, sometimes when you ain't got no education, you just got to use your brains. And uh, to me, it's, it's settled real, real simple. And that is in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus said, everything lives and dies there to me. He said, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. He was quoting Exodus 20:12 and quoting uh, Exodus 21:17. 
Mark chapter uh, 12, verse 26, Jesus quotes the incident concerning uh, the burning bush. And he said, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? Quoting Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, uh, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we'll take Jesus' word uh, for it and uh, move right on uh, along in the study. Now, verse 1. There were, these are the names of the children of Israel who came, uh, uh, of the, who came, oop, I, got a little, I wrote right into the passage there, who came to Egypt each man and his household came with Reuben. And so now we get a recap uh, of the history of the Jews in Egypt from the time of Joseph's death and uh, until the time of, of Moses' birth. So who came into the land of, of, uh, of Israel with Jacob? Well, his sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And so we remember how when Jacob came into the land of Egypt, uh, at the invitation of his son Joseph, they came in as uh, 70 people. The purpose for which God brought them into the land is that they would go from this uh, largish kind of clan and family to becoming a nation that would be able to satisfactorily occupy the land of Canaan, which is the land that God was giving uh, to them. The record of Joseph's death and uh, the death of all his brothers, all of that generation, verse 6, Joseph died, all of his brothers, and all of that generation. And then here we have, in verse 7, uh, everything that we can really know uh, about 250 years of the history of the children of Israel in, in Egypt. Uh, and the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased uh, uh, abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So for 250 years they have been doing exactly what God intended would happen with them, and that is that they would have a safe place, be separated from the culture and the sin of Egypt, that they would multiply as a people, go from being 70 people to now being a nation. And he describes their numerical growth in four ways, fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty and the intimation here is that the reproduction numerically of the Jews at this time was more than just kind of what would happen naturally that there is really something supernatural that that is happening here God's hand involved in in blessing them and all of that's important because this is the main reason why God has kind of cocooned them in Egypt so that their numbers would uh, enlarge Later on, when we get into the book of Numbers, we'll see that when the children of Israel come out in mass uh, from Egypt, that they will number 600,000 young men under the age of 20. So if you add uh, women who are are over the age of 20, rather, you add women who are over the age of 20, you add children, you add the population under the age of 20, you're probably looking at a population of between 2 and 3 million people. So in that 
period of 400 years, they go from 70 to 2 to 3 uh, million people, exactly as God uh, wanted it to, uh, to be. So now, the reason I say all of this, and the reason that this is all in the Bible right here, is God wants us to know that now, the reason for which He has brought them into Egypt has been accomplished. So now it's time when Moses is old enough, another 80 years, uh, to take them out of, of the land. Now, because they have been fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, they now represent a very large segment of the population of Egypt. And uh, that's going to cause some problems uh, for them as a result uh, of it. Now, the problems are going to arise and there's going to be persecution against them. We'll get to that in a moment. But why does God allow this persecution to come against the Jews while it is that they're in Egypt? He blesses them in there. It's a good place. God's purposes are accomplished for their life. But if it all just continues to be easy, He's going to have a tough time getting them out of the land. Now, you're one of God's people. Most of us in the room are, aren't we? When you get in a comfortable place, I mean, how big of a shoehorn or a pry bar does God have to use to get you to move on to the next part of His plan for your life? Sometimes it can be really hard. So He can make something start to stir up, become difficult for us, because He knows right around the corner, He's kind of separating our heart from where it is that we are right now, that He's going to move us on to something else in terms of what He's going to do in our lives. Now, if you think, and we'll get to all of these plagues and everything, certainly not tonight, but we will uh, in, in, in future weeks here. And if you think God was being excessive in, 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 in the plagues in getting them out of Egypt, or even being excessive in allowing the level of persecution that he allows Pharaoh to bring against the Jews, if you think that's excessive, you don't know the Jewish people, uh, according to the book of Exodus. Even after he does all of that to get them out, to make their existence, allow at least their existence in Egypt to be pure misery. By the time out in the book of Numbers, they're out in that land and, and, uh, and they're wandering because of their own sin. That's another story we won't get into right now. But they get upset with Moses. And here we are, all we're eating is this crummy manna, you know, every day it's manna, 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 you know. And they say, don't you remember how good we had it in Egypt, the leeks and the garlic? You know, over time food wins out. Just you younger people, you ought to know that. Food becomes the most important thing. So, he, the leeks and the garlic, how much we could eat and all of that, I wish we were back in there. Even after all of the hardship, they still were, and would ultimately try and lead a revolt and go back into Egypt. So God's going to make it really miserable so they're willing uh, to, to get out. God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's dealing with in, uh, in dealing uh, with us. We're told in verse 8 that a new, there arose a new king or new pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so now you've got over a period of 250 to 300 years, you've probably got several pharaohs that are separated uh, from the time of Joseph. And so 
they, they begin to forget about what Joseph meant to their history, how important he was. So as, as that time gap begins to occur, they are less thankful for Joseph, uh, less thankful for Joseph's people. Uh, so there isn't the appreciation, there isn't a sense of indebtedness to uh, Joseph and to his family. And, and so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any kind of uh, historical bond with Joseph or the Jews. So he's not going to have any trouble mis, uh, mistreating them. And he said to his people, uh, the, the Pharaoh does, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Look at how many of them there are. And look how strong they are. And so here's what we need to do. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So he looks at them and he says, in essence, we have a foreign population in the, in the confines of our, uh, of our country here. And, uh, so, and, and, and here their numbers have become so great that this, this foreign people, they now represent a national security uh, risk. So the, the immigrant population, so to speak, so great, they say, wow, this could be trouble if we got into trouble with things. And he has two concerns. Number one, what would the Jews do if... Uh, Egypt was attacked by an enemy. And uh, at this time in Egypt's history, there were several enemies around them that would have been happy to attack them. The wealth in Egypt was just, you know, coveted by all the nations of the world at that, uh, that part of the world at that time. So they were always under the threat of attack. And they thought, if we get attacked from the outside, do we have a group, a population inside of our country that would join the attackers and it would be the undoing of us? And so they feel they've got, he feels we've got a security risk related to our nation the second thing is is that he's concerned that they will become uh, numeric num, uh, there'll be enough of them numerically and that they will become powerful enough that one day they'll just be able to stand right up and say we're leaving <laughs> and we don't care what you think or about it we're clearing out of here and just emigrate right on out and, and into Canaan they don't want that to happen because while they're uh, going to mistreat the Jews, they don't want to lose the slave labor. They don't want to use the cheap, uh, lose the cheap labor that is causing their economy and the prosperity of their country to roll. And so he, they, they like what's happening right now. They see danger signs. And, and so they want to put some controls on, on this multiplication of the Jews and the prosperity of, of the Jews that God is uh, clearly kind of uh, adding uh, to them. And so he has puts together three plans now for uh, limiting their population growth and their prosperity. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Jews to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So his, his plan for combating their multiplication, combating their prosperity, number one was, first of all, to enslave them. 
and then to work them to death, work the men to death. He's not afraid of the women. He wants to work the men to death because they represent the military threat. It's different today. Now a lot of military is pushing buttons and different things. There it's hand-to-hand combat. It's a male activity. So um, this, is, this is what he looks at. First thing we're going to do is enslave him. So up to this Pharaoh, up to this point in time, they, they have not been you know, formally enslaved as a group of people by Egypt. doesn't mean that they took the Jews and put them up on the slave block and sold them one at a time. This was a national thing that he did. They didn't become household slaves. Pharaoh gives the edict and says, that whole group of people, they are now constitute slaves to Egypt. They will do projects that help Egypt, that fortify Egypt, that uh, help every citizen of Egypt by virtue of the the slave work that we put them to. And he lists two of the uh, supply cities that the Jews built during this time of of enslavement and supply cities were just military supply cities to station troops in have food there that kind of thing for the security of the land so he enslaves the whole group for kind of municipal projects that that's what he he does uh, here but the more he's unsuccessful in all of this the more they afflicted the Jews the more they multiplied and grew completely unsuccessful they're up against God it's really hard to be up against God, even when you're Pharaoh, you know, and you get your little muscles and everything, and you think you're something. So they multiplied, and they grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Like they couldn't understand it. I mean, as these people just get stronger un- underneath this kind of affliction and, and persecution. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and uh, so they enslave them. Now they say, we're going to work them to death. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service which they made them serve was with rigor. And so we're going to, we're going to enslave them and see if that demoralizes them. It doesn't. And so now we're going to try and work them to death in order to just demoralize them. Leave them too exhausted to think of multiplication or to think of rebelling. Or, or, or leaving or anything like, like that. And so this is the plan that he's, he's uh, bringing to bear uh, upon them. It's interesting that verse 14, it talks about that bitterness there where they forced them into labor to the point of bitterness. Later when God uh, enacts related to the Passover in Exodus uh, chapter 12, when we uh, get there, part of the, of the Passover meal was that they would eat bitter herbs with that Passover meal to remind them, even to this day, uh, as they have the cedar, fe- cedar feast, that, that they, to remind them of the bitter experience that they had there uh, in Egypt. Well, this is all completely unsuccessful, and so the king of Egypt now tries plan number two for how to uh, minimize this threat that he perceived related to the Jews. And so he spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Puah. And, and so he calls the Hebrew midwives. We don't know whether they were um, women who were uh, midwives and Hebrew. Uh, their names are Hebrew, they're, they're Semitic names. Uh, but it could mean that they were just midwives to the Hebrews. Josephus thinks that that's what it was. Jewish historian 
for what it's worth. And uh, he feels they were Gentile uh, midwives given Hebrew names because of the nobility of what they were doing for the Jewish people. We don't uh, really know. Well, I do, but I, that's, that's an extra five bucks. No, I don't really know either, but I think they're Jewish. Okay. All right. and, and so he calls them uh, together. Now, he called, there's two of them. Now, we've got, we got a population of 600,000 uh, men over the age of 20, probably a comparable number of women over the age of 20. I mean, and the multiplication is supernatural, what's going on. It's a lot more than two women can handle, probably. So, uh, unless it was non-union, they could just keep them working 24 hours a day or something. But uh, probably, it, 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 it might have just been two of them, but it isn't unlikely that they were kind of like over a uh, midwife union or guild or something like that. Interesting, in Egypt at that time in the ancient world, midwives, very highly esteemed position. I mean, there was great respect given uh, to people, to the women that, that held that position. So he, he brings these two in probably representatives of of a larger group and he said to them when you do the duties of a midwife for the hebrew women uh, and see them on the birth stools doesn't that sound fun uh, birth stools actually they would just use two stools or two stones actually and a woman would just crouch on that and then have the baby that way that's how they did that in then those days and probably move them right out in the fields pretty uh, pretty quickly uh, after that out into the labor again and so when you see them on the birth stools uh, if it's a son that's born then you shall kill him but if it's a daughter then she shall live and so he his second plan is he sets up this secret uh, kind of plan with the uh, Hebrew midwives now to kill all boys that are born uh, let the, the girls live kill all boys uh, that are, are being born that way we will uh, minimize that more dangerous part of, of the Jewish uh, population but the midwives they feared God they, they wouldn't do it I mean they, they realize there's a higher authority in in life than even Pharaoh and so they feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but they saved the male children alive now in a, in a moment here uh, well let's go into it we might as well so the king of Egypt uh, none of these male uh, Jewish children are dying they're just continuing to live like before so the king of Egypt he doesn't like this and he called for the midwives and he said to them why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive and the midwives said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian uh, women they're lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them probably much a fitter group of people they're involved in slave labor hard all of this thing and and all and so at least whether it was true or not they said wow they I mean we take and if we give uh, figure okay this is how long an Egyptian woman is going to be in uh, in labor before she delivers and all if we give that same amount of time to a Hebrew uh, woman by the time we get there that child is born and gone we can if it's a boy we can't find that that boy and uh, so it could be because uh, it, it could be their line it could it could be but I, I just don't like that so they could be saying um, uh, that it could be that they were there the boys are being delivered, they're delivering them, 
and they're helping the Hebrew uh, women out, and they're helping them save them. And then when, Hebrew, when uh, Pharaoh confronts them with it, they say, listen, it's this whole other thing, and that's why it's not happening. Just, they're just lying to him. And, and so it might be that they're looking and saying, um, we will commit uh, the lesser sin of lying to an evil man than committing the greater sin of kill, killing children in obedience to his command. Could, could very well be on, on that. Probably, probably likely on things. Um, but it isn't inconceivable uh, that they could have set up a situation, as I described, where they would say, all right, we're really stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place here. Let's just... Uh, you know, deal with the Hebrew women the way that we would with the Egyptian women in the same kind of time. And we know that by the time we get there, we'll drag our feet and everything. These children will be born and, and hidden as, as a result of that. Now, whatever view you take on this, uh, do never use this as a proof text for lying. Uh, the Bible says, the book of Proverbs says, there's six things, uh, yea, seven, that the Lord hates. And one of the things the Lord hates is a lying tongue. He doesn't need our lies to help him get his will accomplished. He can't go, uh, listen, you know, remember Rahab? Remember the Hebrew midwives? That's why I just lie like crazy, you know, and uh, in, in order to do the lesser evil in this job that uh, God has called me to. Can't do that. Don't do that. But uh, this is what the explanation they gave, and, and I think I'm, I'm giving you a plausible one for them to remain holy in, in all of it. You can decide that for yourself on, on things. And, and so, listen, we, we try to get that they're born, they're light, the whole thing. This, I mean, what, what can we do here? And therefore, God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the, women, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. I mean, they just babies are just coming. I mean, that section of the newspaper there in Goshen just filled just these names of these babies. And so it was. God's going to bless these midwives uh, for, for what they're doing here. But notice why. It's very important. And so it was because the midwives lied that God provided households for them. That's not what it says, does it? So, so God does not, even if they did lie, God does not honor lying. It, so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Now, the Bible teaches, we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as Christians, we are to be the very best citizens in any nation God puts us. We are to be law-abiding citizens. We are to be the kind of citizens that... Um, a country would look at and say that is a found, uh, an important foundation of our country. Those people are the salt of this, this country and that kind of thing. But if the government ever asks us to do anything that violates God's word because of a fear of God, we, we must say no to that command, disobey the command of even, even government in order to obey God, whatever the consequences might be. And the, the fear 
of the Lord is what that produces. And it's, it's not like, oh yeah, you crummy guys and everything, I'm not going to do that. I love God and you're a bunch of pagans and that kind of thing. I mean, it can be like that. But, but it can be just as easily where a person just quietly in their heart looks and says, I am not going to obey this. It's contrary to God's word. And I know I am doing good for my country. I am doing good for people by not disobeying God's word and making a stand in, in this situation. And so that's what we are called to do. Now, God was blessed with them and he provided households for them, we're told in verse 21, which doesn't mean we automatically think of he upgraded their house, got them a bigger house sometimes. So he's talking about he gave them children. He gave them children. When God wanted to bless people in the ancient world and today he gives them children. And I think it's very important for, uh, especially in the Western world, where now we're having about 1.3 children per couple, you know, kind of a thing. It speaks about how we view children and what we view as most important in life and these kinds of things. And, uh, and so here God does, he, when he says, I want to bless you, he blessed them with children. The ch- children are heritage from the Lord. They're a gift from God. God gives to us. Now, the only way you can survive raising them is to know God and uh, to raise them God's way. That's what makes them the blessing. And it's not to buy them every kind of toy and put them in front of every kind of ungodly entertainment and then expect them to end up being a blessing. Uh, it, they're to be raised in the ways of the Lord too. And so Pharaoh, in verse 22, he heads into his third plan, working them to death, enslaving them isn't working. We're not having any success at killing the boys as soon as they're born in this kind of secret uh, plan. And so now he just goes open with his plan to, to kill all of the Jewish boys. And he, like Hitler did in Nazi Germany, he begins now to use the native population of uh, the Egyptians, the whole governmental a- apparatus and everything, now to kill all all uh, Hebrew boys when they're born it is now an Egyptian citizen's responsibility if they find them to take those boys and throw them into the Nile River where they would would be killed and so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive and so these are the three plans that he used now to try and, and destroy uh, the uh, children of, of Israel and, and uh, the, you know, the threat that he uh, perceived them uh, to be. Unsuccessful. It's kind of a little bit of irony, really, in, in all of this, because here is Pharaoh, and he is going to try and use water to destroy uh, these Jewish boys. And uh, God might remember that. Uh, because later on he's going to destroy Pharaoh's entire army uh, through water there in, in, in the Red Sea. Listen, don't be messing with God. I mean, he's got, he can do more things than, than we can. You want to be on, God has said concerning the Jewish people, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I'm going to curse those who curse you. And that carries right on into human history today. Don't be on the wrong side of that blessing. And everyone, it's interesting, go right through history. Everyone that's gone on the wrong side of those promises from God has, has ended up paying a terrible price uh, for it. And, and Pharaoh's going to end up paying a terrible price, and Egypt is uh, also. So he tries all of these things. He has no success because he is up against God. He just doesn't realize it yet. And a man, chapter 2, 
of the house of Levites, so they're, they're, uh, of Levite, they're Levites, uh, he went and he took a wife of the daughter of Levi, and so they became husband and wife. We're going to see later on in chapter 6 that his name is Amram and her name is Jochebed. So they're two very godly Jews, and uh, they're part of what's going to become the uh, priestly tribe of Israel, and uh, they get married in the middle of this whole big mess. I mean, Pharaoh's trying to work them to death and trying to kill all the boys and the whole thing and everything. And they decide to get married. And not only do they decide to get married, they decide to raise a family. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, I don't know how how many of you uh, were, uh, were like me at all. Before I got married, I looked at the condition of the world. We're talking about ancient history now we're talking about 1973 74 75 back there when the hair was big and the beards were big and the levi's were tight in the in the nba they wore those shorty 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 little shorts on the thing you know there's a back in in those days i mean that's when you knew a man well no you didn't know a lot really actually on that it's kind of pre-disco too a little bit but but back in the I looked at the world back then and I hadn't met my wife yet but I thought I don't see any sense at all in bringing not one child into this mess I mean I could look way back then I'm not saved not born again not anything but you could just look at it and say look at the fingerprints on the wall this place is a madhouse and it's only going to get worse I'm, I'm not going to be responsible for bringing a child in, into this world well you know you're young and single and then you know you meet the love of your life then at that uh, point in time my wife wanted to have children and uh, so uh, we ended up having children and for which I'm very very uh, grateful in and all and had two beautiful uh, daughters now married and supplied us well supplied is such a bad word for talking about grandchildren but <laughs> provided us with grandchildren with their wonderful husbands and all of that supplied supplied yes and uh, so but that, that was the view that I had but you look at the scriptures and I mean, here things are worse than, than I could have ever dreamed. And they still married. And they still had children. And, and it, it, I think it's a great encouragement to us, especially as young people. I'm not telling you just to have children and crank, you know, get married and crank out children and that kind of thing. You have as many children as the Lord uh, you feel He wants you to have and, and all of that. But if God's people don't marry and have children, even in the worst of times where the deliverer is going to come from where the Moses is going to come from where the missionary is going to come from where the pastor teachers going to come from where are the evangelists going to come from where are those with the gift of mercy and help going to come from in the world and so here these two they disregard it is you, you can you can make a decision not to marry and not to have children for very spiritual Reasons. The Bible is very clear on that. To, in order to have more time for God's call on your life and these kinds of things, what I'm saying is you never want to use the physical circumstances of the world purely as a basis for not marrying and then not raising a, a family in the will of God. So they marry, they have a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, now what mom doesn't think their child is beautiful, but he was, he was 
super beautiful Moses was apparently it literally beautiful means good so he was very robust very healthy I mean mom just looked at and dad looked at this child and uh, said this is a child that is uh, you know God's got plans for this this child and uh, Moses I mean uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way by faith Moses when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command so they saw him and they saw their child in the light of how God sees a child not in the light of how Pharaoh sees a child and, and they, uh, they assumed what every parent ought to assume concerning their child, and that is, God has a plan for this child. God has a plan for this child. And uh, it's interesting, um, in the uh, uh, infant room, that's right on the other side of the hallway. You see kind of artwork going on as you're, if you're bringing your babies in there. Artwork going on, the walls and everything. and all. The whole theme's going to be Moses in that room. And, and all the way through from the beginning of his life to the end, you'll just be able to look around the room and see the whole of his life. We want to plant in people's hearts as they drop their children off the potential of a life the potential of a child being raised in the things of the Lord. What God can do, even against all apparent odds related to, to things. And so they took and they hid Moses for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, uh, hard to do at about that age, she took an ark of bulrushes, some reeds there from around the Nile for him, uh, wove them together probably, dabbed them with asphalt and pitch to make them watertight on, on the bottom, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds of the river's bank. How hard is that? How hard is that, Mom? That's really rough. And uh, so she's technically obeying uh, Pharaoh just three months late in a little ark uh, on things. So she puts it, we're talking about uh, crocodile infested Nile River. I mean, it's a real dangerous thing. And, but she doesn't have any choice. If he gets discovered, he's going to be thrown into the Nile. She comes up with this plan and, and puts him there in the reeds of the river. She just does her best and then just commits the rest of it uh, to, to God. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now Moses wasn't an only child. In fact, uh, we know that uh, Jochebed and uh, Amram had uh, two children, at least two children before him. Uh, and, and so uh, he, she had a, a sister, that was Miriam, that was probably five to eight years older than Moses, and then uh, Aaron, who was three years older than Moses. So they, the child is put there in, uh, by the banks. His sister Miriam, probably five to eight years old and all, she stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Probably not safe for mom to be there staring. It would be obvious what was going on. But she hangs out there to see what's going to happen to her, her little brother. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, I mean, that was unusual. I mean, this is obviously something that somebody's put some effort into. What in the world's inside of that? 
she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So maybe the light, as they lift the lid off the light, or these strange faces or whatever, but Moses begins to cry. Now, uh, not everybody in Pharaoh's household has the same hard heart that, that he had. Her response was compassion. She had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she immediately recognizes the origin of this little boy. Now, probably from one of two things. Who else, what mother other than a Hebrew mother at this time in human history would be so desperate for the survival of their child that they would put him in an ark in the crocodile-infested Nile? So she says, this is somebody responding to the edict that my father has, has given. Because it doesn't match any other part of the population. Or, she might have pulled the lid off and the blankets moving around and this kind of thing, and she recognizes that he's circumcised and would recognize him as a Hebrew uh, in that case. And then his sister, verse 7, um, uh, Miriam, uh, came. Uh, to Pharaoh's daughter and, and uh, said to her, Shall I go and find a nurse for you from among the Hebrew women that, women that she may nurse the child for you? Now, that wouldn't have been any kind of a problem. Lots of boys are being killed and the mothers still have the milk and all. So finding a wet nurse was not a problem at that time. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. So she goes and gets, Mom, i got a job for you. And so Jochebed comes. And then Pharaoh, you won't believe what happened to, to Moses. Or didn't, he wasn't called Moses at that point. And, and Pharaoh's daughter then said to Jochebed, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So she gets to nurse her own child, raise him in the early years of his life, and she gets paid for him. This is, the government work is just tremendous here on, on things. And so she took the child and she nursed him. And the child grew and then, having grown for a period of time, she brought him to uh, Pharaoh's uh, daughter. Now, uh, in all of this, with Moses' mother now nursing her own son uh, on the government uh, kind of payroll, I have no doubt that she did a lot more than nurse that boy. Now, in those days, because infant mortality was uh, so high and the odds of, a, of an infant uh, surviving uh, in those early couple of years was uh, not so great in all, when, when someone would adopt a child, they would typically wait until they were uh, three, four, five years old before they would formalize the adoption because they did not want to adopt early, then have the child uh, die, as was so common. Uh, and so they would wait until the child had passed through, you know, the more dangerous period of childhood in the ancient world, and then the child will be brought into their household. So by the time Moses is brought to um, Pharaoh's daughter, she, uh, uh, his mother has probably been nursing her, intending, uh, nursing him, intending him for at least two years, probably three, and maybe even more years before he is formally adopted now by uh, Pharaoh's uh, daughter. Now, um, I, I don't think that it takes any imagination at all. Uh, if you put yourself in that mom's place, that again, that she did a lot more than just. Uh, feed that child. What would you do if that was your child? 
You tell him every Bible story you knew. You'd sing every Christian song you could remember to that child. You would tell that child about the history of his people, the plans and the promises that God had given to uh, that people. All of that. You'd plant all of that in that child's mind, as much of it over and over. You're going to see that child a lot. Kids eat a lot, and uh, and just planting that, reinforcing that in that child's heart and mind all of the time. And we're going to see it was very effective because later on when Moses is 40 years old and he's got this tremendous education in Egypt and all of these uh, resources of Egypt and, and all of the learning and all of the history of Egypt that when a day a crisis occurs where he is forced to choose between being an Egyptian and being a Hebrew, he doesn't even blink. He chooses to identify with the Hebrews who he calls his brethren. That's what a mom can do. That's what a parent can do in the early years of a child's life. Can plant things that the education systems of the world, the power of the world, the brain cannot undo by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a great encouragement to us as Christians. Don't wait until a child is nine years old and start teaching them the Bible. I mean, begin right at the beginning. Plant those things. I think it's a great encouragement to those of you who work in the children's ministry. And you look at it and, and you know, they're looking around and wondering and you ask a question and they give some answer from, do you know where you are? You know, and, I mean, it's just so, see, is this making any difference at all? Moses' mom, it'd be 40 years before she saw the fruit of what she had done for those years in her son's life. Sometimes it was a huge block of time. And, and it isn't until much later something happens in a person's life. And then, but you talk to how many of them you talk, and they'll talk about a Sunday school teacher. They'll talk about someone who told them something or read them something or did something as a relative in their life related to the gospel. And it planted something that God never let die in, in their heart. And, and so I have no doubt that she's just taking and, and building him up, not just in terms of physical nourishment, but also in, in terms of, of uh, his heritage and, and the God of, of the Jewish people and, and all. And so the child grew. She, was brought, uh, he, uh, she brought him, Jochebed did, to Pharaoh's daughter. The formal adoption occurs, and he became her son. And so she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. So she names him after the circumstances that she stumbled on him. She drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means. It means to draw out. Now she has no idea that, um, that uh, God allows this name to stand, of course, because God is, has a, a much larger drawing out associated with Moses' life. He's going to draw the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. He is very appropriately named. And so it's, it's very interesting. You think, you think God doesn't have a sense of humor? I think He has a sense of humor. I don't think He tells corny jokes, but I think, I think, he, I think he has you know, fun winning all the time because uh, he loves us enough to win all the time on things. But here he puts Moses, and Moses is now the future deliverer of the children of Israel. 
From, he's going to deliver them out of Egypt, and God is going to have him raised on Egypt's dime. Right there in the palace. Now see, I think that's funny. To me, that's a funny... It's, it's, I know it's ironic, it's dry funny, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. On, on the, but that's, that's what he, he does. Now, we're going to stop here uh, tonight, but uh, before we get into... Uh, we're going to finish up the first 40 years of, of Moses' life here. But I want to bring out a little bit more because there's a 40-year there's a gap between verse 10 and, and verse 11. And there's some aspects about that first 40 years of, of Moses' life that we don't find here in Exodus, but we read about in other places in, in the Bible. From, for instance, from uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, by the Spirit of God, declared, And Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Moses, during his chi- uh, childhood and growing up, when we pick up verse 11, Lord willing, next week, he's going to be 40 years old at that point. So what happened between 3 to 5 years old and 40 years old? Stephen says he became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, was mighty in words and deeds, highly educated in all, Stephen said, of the wisdom of Egypt. We're talking about Egypt at the, at the time where they were there at their greatest in, in human history. And, and so one of the greatest civilizations in human history, they were discovering stuff in terms of politics, in terms of philosophy, in terms of mathematics, in terms of construction and literature and law and economics, continues to impact the modern world. They were way, way ahead of, of their time. They had wealth beyond measure. I mean, the treasures of, of Egypt were legendary in terms of power. They had the power uh, to dominate that part of the world, the power to enslave millions of people. And, and Moses was educated in all of it. Doubtless very fluent in Egyptian, fluent in uh, Hebrew, afforded the greatest education in all of the world at the time. But he not only possessed knowledge, but he, he possessed the ability to, to speak mighty in words. He became a very powerful speaker. So you take all of this knowledge that he accumulated, and there is a certain kind of person who is able to learn uh, a lot of things, uh, accumulate tremendous knowledge, but they have no ability to communicate that knowledge. Moses is this combination of, of being learned in all of the knowledge of Egypt, but now with this incredible ability to communicate what it is that, that he has learned and to pass it on to others. Stephen said he was mighty in deeds. Uh, again, the Jewish historian Josephus writes of a time in Moses' life in which Egypt was a, uh, attacked by the Ethiopians to the south. And uh, Egypt had become soft by that time. And, and the Ethiopians had attacked, intending to only go a very short distance into Egypt uh, in kind of their military foray. But they met such little resistance, they continued to march right up through the land and, and were in, uh, at the doorsteps of overthrowing Egypt at the time. 
and, uh, and how it is that Moses then, uh, as, as an Egyptian general, uh, took uh, and led Egyptian forces against the Ethiopians, defeated them uh, with, with a great uh, slaughter. And so, though Josephus can exaggerate in, in his historical accounts uh, it, at time, it's, it, it's interesting that he does fall in line with what, what the Holy Spirit said through Stephen, and that was that Moses was mighty in deeds. He wasn't just a learner, wasn't just a talker, he was also quite a doer. This is important to remember about him. And so I'm not just saying it to say it. It's important to remember it about him because when God finally comes to him one day and then tries to get him to be the deliverer of Egypt, all this is gone. It's, he doesn't want to do anything for anybody, not even for God. He's done. He's burnt out. He fried. He tried. I can't. That's it. Leave me alone. I just want to die and go to heaven and go find somebody else to do this big thing. But, but early in life, I mean, he's, he's got a lot uh, uh, going for him. And, and so uh, this is, you know, the, the background that he had, the history that he had, uh, that lays then a foundation for what we'll pick up there in chapter 11, I mean, verse 11 of chapter 2 uh, next time.